Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. Well, it's, uh, this is a highlight of the Christian calendar, and I want to take the Easter story today, and I, w- I want to set it in a broader context. Sometimes we, ju- we narrow on some of the details, so that's a good thing. And today we're going to put it in the broader context. We're going to find out that the Easter story is the story of the entire Bible. That's what it is. That's what history is about. History is about Easter, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Scripture tells us that God has a plan for history, which he has been meticulously carrying out. In Isaiah 14, God said, this is the plan. He didn't say plans in plural there. He said, I have a plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? And we see much evidence of that plan. But before we get to the content, I want to step aside and just talk to you for a couple of moments about prophecy because uh, you notice that I'm calling it the promised plan for history. And it's going to be taught, we're going to be talking about prophecy. Now, this is what I want to say. I want to say a couple of things about prophecy. The first one is this. Prophecy is more about promise in Scripture than it is about prediction. Now, from the vantage point of the prophet who was telling it or communicating it, it was a prediction because he couldn't do anything about it. He could simply foretell it. Is that true? But from God's point of view, it was more about a promise because he was going to do something about it. Let me illustrate it this way. If, for example, uh, I say to my grandkids, next week... Uh, we're going to go on a bike ride and we're going to go out for ice cream or pop and chips or something like that. Uh, they never view it as a prediction. They view it as a what? A promise. Why? Because I can do something about it. Is that true? Uh, now, there's a second thing I want to do. I want to give you an interpretive key that will help you with prophecy because so often we look at these uh, prophecies, these predictions, these pro- what I'm now calling a promise, uh, and, and they're all over Scripture, and there's one here, and we take this one, and we take that one, and they're scattered all over the place. And we don't see them as a cohesive whole. We don't see it as one big plan. So I talked about promise already. Now I'm talking about the plan side of the equation, okay? Uh, we, we just see them as, as just scattered predictions all over the place, but they're not. They're part of the same plant. And, and I think a good metaphor would be a botanical kind of metaphor. In a seed, if, if you have a seed, all the aspects of the seed, let's say of an apple tree, they are uh, all the DNA for it, all that that seed is going to become is already in that seed. Is that true? It is. You can't see it, but it is already there. And that's what we're going to find out with the prophecy or the promise from Scripture. There's there's a seed we're going to start off with Genesis. We're going to end up in Revelation. We're going to to fly over the entire thing. Uh, You know, uh, Chris spends endless uh, time in one verse, but I'm going to do the whole Bible in one one service. Can you imagine that? (laughs) That's because I don't know as much detail as he does. Uh, But... um, 
Uh, so what we're going to see is we're going to start with a seed, and we're going to see that seed begin to sprout in the ground. It's going to poke its way through the ground. It's going to grow into a plant. It's going to bud. It's going to blossom. And finally, it's going to come to fruition, or it's going to have fruit. But it's, a, but it's all of the same promise. It's the same story all the, all the way through. That's what we're talking about. So... Let's begin in the book of Genesis, and we've started here before, and we've talked about this before, but hopefully it'll become fresh and new to you even as we do it. When Adam and Eve, so God's promised plan was sown or seeded in Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they gained experiential knowledge of evil as they suffered the consequences of the fall, and God pronounced specific curses on them. It'd be hard labor. There'd be pain in, in childbearing. Uh, there would be, it would be difficult to, uh, to make a living because the crops would be difficult. There'd be thistles and that kind of stuff. The ground would be hard to work and toil. And uh, so that was part of the curse as well. And their relationships would be affected. Their interpersonal relations would be affected. That was all part of the curse. However, that wasn't those weren't, those, those are bad enough. Those are bad uh, curses, but those were sort of the periphery kind of curses. Did you know that that wasn't the greatest curse? The greatest curse that came, uh, we already began to see in the earlier part of chapter 2, because as soon as Adam and Eve, God had said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you're going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, good and evil you're going to surely what? You're going to surely die. Now, did they die physically, yes or no? No, they didn't die physically right then, though their bodies did uh, eventually die. But, uh, they, but did they die right then? Well, Scripture tells us that there are two parts to us. There's the material side, that bios side, from which we get the word bi uh, biology, the biological side. We have our five senses that help us to relate to the world around us. Okay, that's a physical kind of material side of us, life, uh, and uh, we can have it or not have it, okay, life. But there's a second kind, it's, it's called zoe, and we find Jesus talking about it. He said, I've come that they might have what? Life and have it to the, have it to the full. That's zoe is the word over there. That's a different kind of a life. That's that immaterial side of us, the soul spirit side of us that relates not to the bios or the universe or the cosmos around us, but it relates to God himself. And that's what died that day. The relationship with God was, was deeply affected immediately. As soon as they sinned, God came to the garden and they hid. I mean, first they covered themselves and then they, they hid from him. It says they were actually afraid of him. So first time they were afraid of God and they had reason to be afraid because he's a holy God. Is that true? Yes. And, uh, and then God said, where are you? And they, of course they were hiding and stuff. Then you have him pronouncing, these, he questions them on this and then he, uh, he pronounces these curses. And a little while later, um, a, 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 little, a little while later, it says that he, was, uh, that he drove them out of the garden and set cherubim over there so they couldn't go back and eat of the tree of, uh, uh, of life, okay? So their relationship with God, the fellowship and communion that they'd been enjoying was, complete, was completely severed at that, it was severed at that point. And they couldn't have that fellowship anymore. And Satan thought 
that he had, he gloated thinking that he had succeeded in ruining it all. And in that sense, he, he really had. He really had. I mean, all those other curses, the perfect ones, but also specifically their relationship with God was severed. And uh, they were apart from him. They died that, in that sense that day. And listen to me. You, you say, well, you know, uh, what's, 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 the, what's, the, what's the big deal about that? Think, think about it this way. In, um, uh, th- that is a really, really big deal. Let's say you go on a vacation or have, you have memories of doing the same kind of a, a vacation all the time with your spouse or your family or a friend or something like that. Some things that you've really enjoyed over the years. And then suddenly you lose that spouse or family or, or friend or something like that. Either they abandon you or they die or something like that. And some of you have experienced that. If you go and do some of those same things again, are they as enjoyable as they were before? No, they become dull. They're not even that interesting. And that's the point. That's the point. Not having, you know, sometimes the worst things in life you can enjoy. uh, I I mean, even if you're suffering greatly, 15 minutes with God can change everything. Is that true? I'm not saying it changes the circumstances. I'm saying that he can change and, give, and bring life back into you. Do you see what I'm saying? The next person isn't suffering anything, and they don't have God, and everything is dull and gray and black and depressed. Is that true? Yeah, it really is. So we see that what Satan was able to manipulate there was was huge. It was, tr- it was really, really huge in the universe. But God promised and predicted a plan to restore this relationship with mankind and, of course, some of the periphery things that go along with it. Tucked right in the middle of, this, of the curses, God promised blessing. He said, and I will put enmity between you, he's talk- speaking there of the devil, and uh, the woman and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and the serpent. That's a, it's metaphorical. It wasn't a real uh, a serpent. I mean, he's called a dragon in, in Revelation. He can't be a serpent and a dragon all at the same time. It's a metaphor and, uh, for, for Satan. And between your seed, the serpent's seed, and Eve's seed, he, being Eve's seed, shall bruise your head, you on the head, and you the devil's seed, shall bruise him, that's that male seed of Eve, on the heel. So the instrument through whom the victory would arise and reverse the curse springs up from a male descendant, the he, him, male singular pronouns, uh, springs up from the woman's seed. It's, a, it's, it's, hum, it's human. This is a human that is going to reverse this. Uh, this whole thing. And in defeating the serpent's seed, um, uh, presumably by stepping on, you know, crushing his head by stepping on his head and crushing him, he would experience bruising on his heel from the serpent who he was crushing on the head. Of course, that's a metaphor, but it's a good metaphor, a good picture of that, right? And we have the first hint of suffering that's going to take place. This one who's going to reverse this curse somehow, it's just a, it's, it's, it's just vague, it's opaque, uh, is, is going to eventually crush Satan's plan and everything that he's done and reverse this curse, but in doing so, 
we see the first hint of suffering that's going to come with it as he does that. And um, that's incredible. Well, somehow this, uh, uh, th- this, this promise continues hundreds of years later. Noah, and we have to skip over so much material to fly to the end of <laughs> Revelation here today. But in doing uh, that, we're, we're going down through. We get to Noah. The whole, you know, humankind has been wiped out except for Noah and his wife and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. And they come out of the ark And Ham does something so despicable, we don't know what it is, but it's so despicable that that, um, uh, Noah pronounces a curse on him and then continues on with a blessing. And this is what he says. uh, and, and, And we begin to see hints of it again. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him, God, Dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan, that's Ham, be his servant. And uh, I want you to notice something here that God would dwell with the Shemites. That's a big deal because now he had excluded them and suddenly we got this dwelling idea coming back in. The Shemites, by the way, later the, the, uh, the lettering changed and it, was, it became the Semites. So we got the Semitic people and he says, I'm going to dwell in, uh, with the, in the tents of the Semitic people. And, uh, and did, did God actually do that? He did, yes, through Israel. He, uh, he, he showed up in a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Uh, he, was, he, he, would, uh, he would dwell in the tabernacle um, over the, over the ark, ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. He was there, the place where the high priest would go in once, uh, once a year for the to offer the blood of atonement on the day of atonement. And, but he, he was dwelling with them, but notice, at a distance. It, it was in a limited way. It wasn't the same way, uh, but he said he would begin to dwell. That, there's that theme again about God being with man and man being with God. And we need to be with him. Is that true? As, as we illustrated earlier. All right. Well, we skim through history. We go hundreds of years later, and we, we go through the line of Shem, and uh, it, it takes us through the genealogy there in the rest of chapter 10, 11 of Shem. And very quickly, without comment, it comes right to the person of Abraham, opens up with the story, Genesis chapter 12, and it's God calling Abraham to leave his uh, father and his uh, father's house and and his country and go to a place that he would show him. And then he pronounces this. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this idea of blessing, but notice the word curse in there. There were curses pronounced over there. Now we got a little bit of a simile there. And this promise was expanded to Abraham five times and there were additional things. Remember this little plant, the little seedling, and now we got a sprout coming up and we're starting to see more elements of it because he says in Genesis 22 to Abraham in one of the five expansions of the promise planned to him, he says, uh, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is seed. Wait a minute. That ark is about, that, that's, that's Genesis 3.15. That's exactly what God had said. There'd be a seed coming, a male seed 
who had crushed Satan's head, who had tried to separate God and man, and, and uh, would defeat him with some suffering as a result of that. And now we find it's, that seed is being talked about in Abraham. So it's coming through Shem, it's coming down, it's funneling down, it's coming through Abraham, and we see other aspects of it. Uh, of this promise. We're seeing more aspects of it. There's many descendants, national status, nation status, a great name, land, and so far, and so on. But the central feature of it is still there from in the seed, uh, you know, from in, in the seed thought. It's the seed of this woman that he is talking about. So now we see there's a male seed who will defeat Satan and suffer um, uh, who will come through the Semites and Abraham and will be a blessing to, somehow, a blessing to all the nations because of the way he's going to crush and defeat Satan and uh, restore the relationship with God. From Abraham, of course, the promise tra uh, transferred to Isaac and then to Jacob. And to Jacob, God included the promise of kings, which we haven't seen till now yet. But it's not surprising because he already told Abraham, you're going to have many descendants and, and those many descendants will be formed into a nation. And so to have a king over a nation makes a whole lot of sense. And so now you have these, these descendants, you have this nation, and you have this king who is the, who's the singular uh, head of the corporate that are a blessing to the nations somehow, and they come from the seed of the woman. And um, we see that uh, uh, evidently, um, before he died then, uh, Jacob transmitted the promise uh, in a blessing to his fourth son. He skipped over Reuben and Levi and Simeon because of some immoral things they had done. And the blessing was passed on to Judah. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. When, when, Isaac, when Abraham is transferring the blessing to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob now to Judah, he's not just... You know, sometimes I've read books and you just go and pronounce a blessing. That's not what's going on here. What he is, what he is passing on is, is through a line, that promise, that male figure, this blessing that's going to come through all the nations, and that is being transferred. This one big promise is being transferred. It's narrowed. Shemites, or Semites, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's not Esau, it's not, you know, it's not these, no, no, it's, it's through these, and now it's going, it's, it's going to come through Judah, this, uh, this blessing to the nations. And to Judah, he says something very interesting. He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes, NIV has it right there, uh, other translations say, until Shiloh comes, but in Ezekiel, he translates that properly and shows what that means until he whom, uh, uh, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Uh, the underlined phrase there hints at a unique king who will appear at the end of the line of kings to whom the kingdom really, really belongs. So we see that there, is a, that there is going to be a kingly dynasty somewhere here. But eventually, in obscurity, in the fog, we see that at the end, it's going to end up, the scepter is going to end up with somebody to whom it really belongs. We don't know who that is. 
And uh, this is the one who's the seed of the woman. It's a male who's going to crush Satan, who's going to somehow overturn the curse, and he's going to suffer in doing that somehow. Well, God's promised plan grows in David. It has sprouted in Abraham. It grows in David. Of course, we're going to have to skip all the way over Moses and all of that. We could spend a lot of time there as well, but we, we don't have the time. So let's move on to David because of this king piece. David became king over all Israel. He had defeated all his enemies, and he wished to build a temple for the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, Nathan the prophet said, that's a great idea, but at night God spoke to Nathan and said, go back to David and say, don't build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And by house he meant a dynasty. Oh, now suddenly what, it, what we've seen through the tribe of Ju Judah, they were singing about the line of Judah. Do you remember that? They were singing about that. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, now it's going to, we, we discover that it's going to come through David. God says, I'm going to build you a house or a dynasty. And many of the elements in this message are the same, a great name, a place for Israel, land. Uh, all nations will be blessed through him. Jehovah's going to be their God. Seed shows up in there again. We just don't have the time to go and look at all this. But God revealed another aspect of the promised plan. He promised that David's dynasty would, uh, would endure forever. What, what is that all about? No human dynasty lasts forever. Dynasties, empires don't last very long, human ones, do they? They all get overturned at some, some point. Uh, and from Genesis 49.10, about Judah and the dynasty, we already know the dynasty ends up with a king ruling to whom the kingdom belongs. But who is this obscure figure? And we get a glimpse from something that David says in Psalm 110. Remember, Acts tells us that David also was a prophet. And David, in the Psalms, by the way, the Psalms say more about this figure than any other Old Testament book. Isaiah says the second, second most amount uh, on that. But in Psalm 110, David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter. Her, there it is, from Zion, who will rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus used this very passage to confound the Pharisees because there's a bit of a riddle here. There's three persons involved here. The Lord said to my, David's writing, that's David, Lord. And uh, we, al we already discovered that this person who is going to come is a human, is uh, from, uh, from the seed of uh, he's from the seed of the woman. He's human on the, on the one side. He's king. He's divine. He's going to suffer in crushing Satan. And now we discover something else. Not only is he a descendant of David. You know, we've gone through the whole line. Not only is he a human descendant of David, but now we discover that he's also David's Lord. <laughs> is that a riddle? Is that a riddle? It is a riddle. That's what Jesus used on the Pharisees and confounded them and shut their mouths. And the answer to the riddle is that he's both human and divine. We discover that he is both. Wow. No wonder, because there's an element here that he promised David that his dynasty would last or endure forever. Well, no wonder, because he's God as well. But he's human and he's God at the same time. And uh, that's remarkable. We're seeing this promised plan 
Not just a prediction, it's a promise, because God is fulfilling it. He's sovereignly in control. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? <sighs> Friend and I once, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were attending a church in, in Vancouver and heard a pastor, you would all know who, who he is, he's, uh, he's well known, and he said to the congregation there, he horrified it, he said to the congregation, uh, God is not in charge of this world because if he was, he was, he'd be the worst manager there ever was. And Fran and I gasped. We grabbed our hands and didn't know, if, should we leave? Should we stand up and shout? Or what should we do? Because it sounded so blasphemous. But um, hey, God is sovereign and he's in control. He's got a promised plan. Is that true? Oh, yes, he does. Well, it buds in Isaiah from David's time onward. A stream of writing prophets kept appealing to this promised plan that God had given to the patriarchs and to David. Their messianic passages were mostly repetitions and supplements, as we've already been seeing, amplifying on the promised plan uh, revealed up to that point because the plant is growing and we're seeing more aspects of it. Unfortunately, however, this dynasty that was promised, this stately dynastic tree of David had to be cut down because, because of the failure of David's line. And you remember that's exactly what happened. Solomon became king. He started off really good. And then later he married, you know, he married a thousand wives, followed their gods. Kingdom was eventually taken from him. You got the story of Rehoboam, his son, and the kingdom was divided with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jeroboam took the ten northern tribes, and Rehoboam was left, uh, and descendant of Solomon and David, uh, was left with, the, with, with two. And all the kings of the north were wicked and evil, every last one of them. And eventually, God used the Assyrians to come and wiped them out and assimilated them, and they are no more, and you've never seen them again. Although, Scripture says one day that those two will come back together. That's really exciting, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know how he's going to do it, because they're all mixed up. But, um, a mixed breed. But then, uh, then, then you have the other two. Half of the kings were good, the southern kingdom. Half of the, those kings in that dynasty were good, and half of them were bad. And eventually God had had enough with them, and he cuts them off, and he sends the Babylonians over, takes them into captivity for 70 years, where they are prophesied to by Ezekiel and Daniel. And eventually Daniel, reading Jeremiah's prophecy, prays for them, and they come they come back into the lands. He predicts that Cyrus, remember he predicted that, that Cyrus, uh, 163 years before Cyrus was even born, God predicts that he's going to uh, make an announcement and send them back to, uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild, and they did. But uh, the tree had been cut off, and it looks like all the promises of God are null and void. Uh-oh, not so. The story doesn't end there because God has a plan. He's not surprised by anything, is he? No, he's not surprised by anything. And it, it says, a shoot, uh, all you're left with, when you cut the tree, it, you're left with a stump. Is that true? And he says, out of the stump is going to grow a branch. And you've seen that in stumps. They've got a little bit of life. And also you get this branch, lonely branch growing out. It looks kind of weird. And he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, so the same thing as David. 
From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It's a metaphorical language to help us to really understand it. Jeremiah identified this branch as the great Davidic king to come. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king. Coming out of the stump of, of Jesse or David, because this be, the tree's been cut down, who will reign wisely. And Isaiah, Isaiah agreed with David that this branch king is divine. He called him in Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, 6 he said, a son will be born. Uh, and he called him mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And this divine king branch, who is seed of a woman, who would crush Satan and in doing so would suffer and would be a king who is human and divine, this one who is a branch coming out of the stump, uh, will bless the nations with his universal reign. Aren't you, don't, don't you look forward to a universal reign by that, kind, that king? I do. And it says, all nations, David said, will bow to him and all nations will serve him. All nations will be blessed through him. Oh, that sounds like the blessing of Abraham. All nations will be blessed through this person. And this is that universal reign. He doesn't just reign uh, over the, ten, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to reign over the entire earth. Wow, is all I can say. Sounds like the promise to Abraham. And then in Isaiah 9, 7, he said, of the increase of his government, and we see why it's such a blessing, and peace, there's going to be peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? With what? Justice. And with? Don't you long for that kind of government? Oh my goodness. And another passage, and we don't have time to go to all these, but it talks about it'll be prosperous. And it talks about the righteous will flourish. Nowadays, do Christians flourish around the world? The answer is no. But one day we'll be in the majority because it'll be 100%. Is that exciting? It'll be all righteous. Righteousness will flourish. This is going to be an exciting time. I can hardly wait. And the greatest blessing he will confer, however, is not those things that I just mentioned. In his eternal reign, the greatest blessing that he will confer is himself. Because in Isaiah 7:14, he says, and this one that's going to be born of a woman, this son, this male figure, is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, we're right back to what we were talking about, what was lost in paradise and uh, now he gives a hint that it will be restored. It'll be God with us. Wow. But there was another way this divine seed king branch would bless the nations. Four verses after David called him a king. You know, in Psalm 110 there where we said, my Lord said, no, the Lord said to my Lord. That whole passage there where he said he's a king, divine king. Four verses later, do you know what he's called? A priest after the order of Melchizedek. What's going on there? He's a priest. Um, the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest entered the most holy place to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. And I want you to notice this king priest, who is the seed of a woman, 
who's going to crush Satan and overturn it and restore a relationship with God, reverse the curse, and will suffer in doing that. This king priest uh, was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In, in Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek was described both as a king of Salem and as a priest of God. And that's why he's called after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of the Levites. Because uh, he is both a king and he is a priest. Of course, Moses tells us uh, in Deuteronomy 18, I wish we had time to go there, he's also the great prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. But here, all we have time for is to, uh, to look at this. So what is the significance that this king is also a priest? Well, the priest was to mediate between God and man through sacrifice. And there's more. Not only will this male descendant become a king and a priest... He will also, well, let's see. Recall Jeremiah said that the branch is a king. Remember we said that in Jeremiah 23, uh, that this branch coming out of the stump of, uh, of, of uh, Jesse and, and David that is a king. But Zechariah explicitly says that the branch is also called a servant. This is really critical that we understand this. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Not only will the branch king who's coming out of the stump of David, which will be the tree is being cut down, bless the nations with his rule, somehow he will bless the nations as a branch servant. How? Well, for this we'll look at the most sublime of all prophecy promises, Isaiah 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12, this song, which was prophesied and promised and written by Isaiah approximately 700 years before Christ, is divided into five stanzas or divisions of three verses each. And this is how it goes. It says, see, my servant will act wisely. The, real, the right word there is um, successfully or prosperous. same word is in Joshua 1.8. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as many were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, in the same way, he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle. Well, that, that takes us back to the whole Levitical system, because they would take the blood of the sacrifice, and the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year, and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, he would present the blood and that would ensure that, and, and the forgiveness of their sins and God would continue to dwell, somewhat limited there, within their midst as long as they did that. There had to be sacrifice to atone for these sins somehow. And he says he will sprinkle many nations and... Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they had not been told they will see, and what they've not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, intimating the virgin birth. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him, many did, stricken by God. Let God take him off the cross, if he will. They mocked him. 
Yet he was considered stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace with ourselves. Peace with the nations. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, the apex of, the, of the whole, this whole passage. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, as they did in the garden. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just stop for a sec. Wait a minute. A divine king? who's going to give us wonderful rulership. That's amazing. Yes, great. A divine priest who's going to keep offering sacrifices to appease God so that he will sort of be in our midst. Great. But never had mankind conceived, could mankind or anyone have conceived, that he would also be the divine sacrifice that he would offer himself, which is why kings shut their mouths because of him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He submitted to the whole process. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression... And judgment, he was taken away to five kangaroo court trials. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, Thebes on both sides, and with the rich, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait a minute. And uh, the will of the Lord will prosper in his name. What God had intended, what he had initiated in Genesis 3.15, it's going to prosper. It's going to happen. This one's going to do it. This divine king, priest, sufferer. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Hebrews says. He will uh, see the light of life and be uh, satisfied. And he will bear the sins or iniquities of many. Therefore, I will give him a portion among... This is God the Father now saying, I will give him... A portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, for he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's what Isaiah says. And he says, it will be successful. See, my servant will act successfully. And then at the end, it's kind of a bracketed inclusio kind of thing. He said he will see the results of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. 
because it worked. Whatever had to transpire to bring us back into fellowship with God, which Satan had made sure had been severed, it worked. Is that amazing? Well, we're just seeing that, seeing it from a distance, 700 years before the fact, the promised plan blossomed in Jesus. John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the great prophet of all time, finally identified who the mystery Messiah, this figure was. In John 1.29, he said the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Oh, my. Harkening back to the Exodus lambs that were slaughtered so that they, uh, that they didn't come under execution by the death angel. But it also harkens back to what Isaiah said. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. And John says, he's the one that Isaiah was talking about 700 years ago. Now, it is true that John said that Jesus made his dwelling among us, referring to Jesus as the Word. John said, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he's talking there about Jesus. And it looks almost like it's done. He's here now. He's dwelling with us. But wait a minute. The Word is tabernacled. It means to camp, or I mean to tent, or to encamp. In the Old Testament, they, when they, uh, they had the tabernacle, it was portable. It was temporary until they came into the promised land where they had the temple, and it was set up as the permanent structure once for all. But here, it's the tabernacle, and it's temporary. Jesus tabernacled temporarily. He did not come to dwell. That was, he, he did dwell for that period of time, but that wasn't his primary purpose in coming. He came to do what had been hinted at in Genesis 3.15 all along and what Isaiah expanded on. He came to be the sacrifice so that uh, we could be restored in our relationship with God again. That's why he came the first time. And that's precisely what Jesus' sacrifice produced because on Matthew 27, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is on the cross. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. And this signified the removal of the separation between God and man and people. Hebrews 10 says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, what? Draw near relationship back with God. Because he has now ripped that curtain apart and we can have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's why Jesus said to the disciples when he said, I'm going away, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away, but I'm coming back again. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And, 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 and Philip said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what he was saying. Wow. It's exciting, isn't it? So though this was the greatest act of love in history, it's at the center. It's the centerpiece of history. It wasn't the end in itself. 
It was the means to the end. And we're, for that, we're going to end in Revelations. God, Revelation, God promised plan, God's promised plan comes to fruition in the new heaven and earth. And, uh, and he promised that he would, uh, he had already promised the disciples that he, in uh, John 14, which I quoted, he would come back and he would never leave again. And then in Revelation chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with man. There it is. Paradise lost, paradise gained. And he will live with them. They will be his people and he will be with them and he will be their God. There will be no, he will wipe all tears away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen? That's the broad picture of the Easter story. The Bible is Easter. It's the Easter story, the whole thing from the start to the finish. That's what it is. It's the story of Easter. God's promised plan to restore us to relationship with him so that we could live with him forever and ever. And do you know how Revelation ends? With a prayer. Oh, I love it that it ends with a prayer, don't you? John prays this prayer. It's a very short one, one of the shorter ones you'll ever read. And it simply says, even so, come Lord Jesus. True? Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the cry of my heart. Isn't that the cry of your heart? Full dwelling with God through Jesus Christ. Not at a distance. Not just in my basement when I'm pacing in prayer. Seeing him face to face one day. Singing with millions Millions and millions, throngs, countless. John says in Revelations, couldn't count them. There were so many. Can you imagine the music? Can you hear the strains? He says he's going to wipe away every tear. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> tear of mourning and sorrow and crying and pain, yes. Tears of absolute, unmitigated joy, <laughs> not a chance. He's going to have to give us way more dear du uh, tear ducts to be able to handle that time with him. Amen? Because we'll experience life, Zoe life, to the full like we've never experienced before. You say, well, how do I, how do I get that? It's easy. Do exactly what Abraham did. It says, Abraham in Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The literal rendering is, he believed in Yahweh. And Jesus is Yahweh. We sometimes sing that, right? Jesus is Yahweh. You believe in him. 
You trust him. He, he did it for you. You can't do it. You can't fix that relationship. Jesus can because he died on the cross for your sins. He was crushed for your iniquities. And if you'll just trust that and receive that for yourself, then you can have that relationship forever and ever. Amen. So I'm going to pray now. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you don't know him, that's the plan for you and for all of history and for all of mankind. Then why don't you believe on him today? Ask him to be your savior, your personal savior. He died for everybody, but not everybody wants it because he won't force it. So say, Lord, I want that, and he'll save you today. Lord, maybe there's somebody here. Maybe there are a number of people here today who don't know you. They have never trusted in you. They've never believed on you as Abraham did. And today they see the picture, the plan, the promised plan for all of history and mankind and for themselves. Jesus paid it all. And all they have to receive that is do is receive that for themselves. Lord, right now, prompt them by your spirit. Draw them to yourself by telling them to do it now. If he is moving in your heart right now, just say, I receive it, Jesus. I receive you with gladness. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to be one of yours, and I want to live with God and with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.